Welcome back to yet another great episode of Digging Up the Past, the show that hopefully reignites your interests in ancient history. And if not, well, not much I can do with that. I am your host, Petros Katupis, and we are about to go on a journey taking place at the end of the Late Bronze Age in the Aegean, at least as it is told by Homer. Today, we are going to talk about the Odyssey. Well, specifically, the first four books of the Odyssey, referred to as the Telemachy. The Odyssey is one of my most favorite epic tales. It is pretty high up there in my list, next to the Iliad, of course, and the very awesome Epic of Gilgamesh. Hmm, what else is on that list? I do enjoy the Aeneid, and Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy is also on that list. Yes, I am pretty strange. If only you could see my many bookshelves filled with historical and theological books written in many languages, which include English, Greek, Latin, Hebrew, Aramaic, and much more. Anyway, many of us should know at least the general premise of the Odyssey. It stars our Greek hero Odysseus and his 10-year journey back home to the island of Ithaca after the 10-year Trojan War. The Odyssey is partitioned into three distinct parts. The Telemachy, which encompasses books 1 through 4. The Wanderings consists of books 5 through 12. And the remaining 12 books, uh, which is 13 through 24, are referred to as the Homecoming. The Telemachy tells the story of Odysseus' son, Telemachus. Ten years after the Trojan War, he journeys from his home in search of news about his missing father. Odysseus does not directly appear in the narrative until book five, that is, the wanderings. The reader is given a glimpse of the events at the palace in Ithaca, and because of the king's absence, how there are a multitude of suitors vying for Penelope's hand in marriage. Cunning and methodical in the ways of her believed-to-be deceased husband, Penelope cleverly delays her having to choose a new husband from the undesired and nearly permanent house guests who are draining the family of their wealth. This attempt at procrastination lasts for a few years. Telemachus, on the other hand, wants to be rid of these suitors and is in desperate need to learn of his father's fate. So he sets on a journey to learn if he is still alive, and of his whereabouts. Again, it took Odysseus 10 years to reach his home. That is the island of Ithaca, which is situated in the Ionian Sea uh, to the west of the Greek mainland. In the meanwhile, assuming that Odysseus has been dead, his wife and son Telemachus must deal with this group of unruly suitors who, again, are competing for Penelope's hand in marriage. And the worst part is these disrespectful suitors, again, are eating Telemachus out of his home while also planning his death. What may stand out to our audience is the fact that Telemachus does not assume the throne himself, you know, in the absence of his father, Odysseus. Instead, the future king of Ithaca is to be found somewhere among the local nobles who are wooing Penelope. It is even stranger when you take into consideration that Odysseus' father, Laertes, did not sit on the throne himself. The social situation in Ithaca was not unique to Ithaca. 
For instance, Menelaus, the brother of Agamemnon, was the king of Sparta only after marrying Helen, a Spartan princess, before her abduction and, and the Trojan War began. It seems as if the Homeric epics preserve a tradition by which dynastic succession was transmitted through the female line, although how much of this tradition of royal succession stems from the Bronze Age Aegean? We need not look further than Asia Minor, that is Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. The same characteristics of inheritance and kingship transmitted through the female line was discovered in the Hittite royal archives pertaining to the Hittite monarchy. The king was merely the queen's consort, and kingship was achieved by the male immigrant marrying the local matriarch. A wonderful example comes from the Telepino proclamation written in the Hittite tablets CTH 5 and 6, where after the Hittite king, Mursili led a successful campaign against Babylon, destroying the city and defeating the Hurrians in their land. Upon returning to the capital, Hattusa, he was assassinated, and his brother-in-law, Hantili, ascended the throne. Hantili was succeeded by Zidanta, his son-in-law, and so on. This dynastic struggle led Telepinu to rewrite the law of succession in which a prince, a son of the king, inherited the throne, thus establishing a patrilinear form of succession and ensuring that the title of king did not fall to the hands of invaders. Could it be that the Mycenaean Greeks followed a similar tradition? The Homeric epic would lead one to believe that they did, but unless future Linear B inscriptions uh, officially confirm that to be the case, we will never truly know. Another topic of interest I wanted to touch on comes to us from Book 4 of the Odyssey. Helemachus reaches Sparta, where he meets with Menelaus. It is in lines 82 through 85 that caught my attention. Recounting his voyage back home from Troy and speaking to Telemachus, Menelaus states, I brought my wealth home in my ships and came in the eighth year. Over Cyprus and Phoenicia I wandered, and Egypt, and I came to the Ethiopians and the Sidonians and the Arembi and to Libya. Okay, so he came home wealthier than before after plundering Troy, and likely the rest of the locations he mentioned to Telemachus. Plundering a fallen city was a very common practice in the ancient world. The tradition continued into Roman times and much, much later. How else would you pay for your army, or at least encourage them to fight your battles? For your normal soldier, it wasn't just for glory. Anyway, the story relayed to Telemachus seems to parallel the narrative found in the Nostoi, or the Returns, which makes up the Trojan cycle, also referred to as the Epic cycle. Remember, both the Iliad and the Odyssey, for as large as they are, do not provide us with a complete Trojan War narrative. All the events that came before, in between, and after are preserved in other narratives which, when you put them together, are known as the Trojan Cycle. And one of those narratives is the Nostoi, which we often call the Returns. The poem opens up with the Greeks ready to sail back to Greece. Nestor and Diomedes are the first to reach home. Agamemnon stays behind, and after a few trials himself, eventually arrives home to be slain at the hands of his wife's lover, Agathus. 
Prior to the Greeks setting sail for Troy 10 years earlier, Agamemnon sacrificed his and Clytemnestra's daughter, Iphigenia, to the gods. Clytemnestra never forgave him for this act. Later in the story, Orestes avenges his father's death and kills both Clytemnestra and Agathus. On the other hand, Menelaus sets sail at roughly the same time as Nestor and Diomedes do, but encounters a storm, loses some of his ships, and lands in Egypt for several years. The details of which are cataloged in Menelaus's telling of his return home from Troy to Telemachus in Book 4 of uh, the Odyssey. In his library, Apollodorus elaborates a bit more on the events of the returns by stating that the Greeks landed in different countries and settled there. Such countries include Libya, Italy, Sicily, uh, the islands near Iberia, which is modern-day Spain, Cyprus, and even the Sangarius River in northern Anatolia. It is unclear if Apollodorus preserved these migration details from the original poem or if it was a later tradition. For those of us familiar with the events of the late Bronze Age, it reminds us of the migrations of the sea peoples recorded in the Egyptian texts. Could it be that Homer is preserving a history of similar migrations here? Ah, the Sea Peoples, one of my most favorite historical topics of all time. Now, who were the Sea Peoples? Honestly, they deserve an entire episode of their own, and I do plan on covering them in a future episode, but for now, I will just give a general overview. Again, we are at the very end of the Late Bronze Age circa 1200 BCE. Trouble was a brewing. Empires were collapsing and weakening. The Mycenaeans were losing control over the general Aegean and even within its borders on mainland Greece. The locals were overthrowing the elite and burning down the palaces. Over in Anatolia, other revolts were occurring which were impacting the stability of the Hittite Empire. Egypt's control of the Levant weakened, especially now that they were too busy defending their own from invaders coming in from all borders. Honestly, the only empire least affected by the collapse of civilization was that of uh, the Assyrians. Theirs was a young empire still growing and taking full advantage of these gaping holes left by the surrounding collapsing civilizations. Anyway, it is unclear as to the reason or reasons of this social economic collapse, but it is understood by scholars that these sea peoples were part of the equation. The sea peoples or the peoples of the sea were an enigmatic confederacy of seafaring raiders from central and eastern Mediterranean regions who sailed east and invaded Anatolia, Syria, Canaan, Cyprus, and Egypt at the tail end of the Bronze Age. The term used to refer to these foreign migrants is derived from the ancient Egyptian sources in which we have numerous documented accounts of battles involving them. It should be noted that not all of the sea peoples originated from the sea, but some also came from the lands such as Anatolia. Again, the Sea Peoples have been credited for devastating the region and bringing entire nations and whole empires to an end. They pillaged and plundered and burned whole cities as they passed through. Or at least, that was the initial thought. 
Identified by Egyptian sources across multiple pharaohs, scholars have isolated, but not entirely identified a total of 10 tribes or groups of sea peoples who were said to have wreaked havoc in Egypt. But why Egypt? At the time, it was the center of wealth, power, and uh, civilization in the then economic world. It would have been an attractive location for anyone looking for new opportunities. So bringing their families and cattle and anything else that they could carry with them, the Sea Peoples ventured off into the unknown, looking for a new life. Uh, this sounds very reminiscent of the accounts uh, by Menelaus and the one uh, written in the Nostoi. But those are not the only ones to be found in the Trojan Cycle. Uh, this does bring to mind an episode of uh, the Odyssey referred to as the Cretan Lie, when in the court of King Alcanus in the land of Phaeacians, Odysseus deceives his host by stating that he was a Cretan serving under the command of Idomeneus. After the Trojan War, and desiring new adventures, uh, he led a group of men on a raid into Egypt. According to his lie, after the Trojan War and desiring new adventures, he led a group of men on a raid into Egypt. They would raid the Delta, but upon reaching the Egyptian capital, were immediately defeated. Odysseus begged the Egyptian king for mercy and remained on Egyptian soil for seven years. During this period of instability, we find the inscriptions of both the pharaohs Merneptah and Ramses III depicting battles against Aegean intruders in the Nile Delta region. Many of these intruders were eventually resettled in the land of Canaan, which include the Peleset or the Philistines of the Old Testament. Others may have stayed behind to serve as royal guard or mercenaries in the pharaoh's army, which was a very common practice at the time. Again, it was all about opportunity. As these civilizations were collapsing around them, many fled their homelands in search of, well, a living. There was nothing left back at home, which reminds me a lot of my parents. Uh, they immigrated here to the United States for similar reasons. At the time, in Greece, there was nothing for them. So they relocated their entire life into the great unknown, the U.S., to look for a way of life. This, this was no different. I imagine that also during this time, piracy increased both on land and in the sea. There are multiple references to pirates and piracy throughout the Homeric texts. And honestly, in Greek culture, the concept or idea of piracy was not frowned upon. It was seen as a legitimate career and a way of life. In the Ionian Sea, and not too far from Ithaca, lies the islands of Tafos. We're talking about northwestern Greece. This was the home of pirates, the Taphians. Penelope mentions the Taphian sea robbers when she rebukes the chief of her suitors, which brings another question to mind. Does the story of the suitors recall or preserve sea people's events? What do I mean by this? The sea peoples did not just relocate to Egypt and Canaan and Anatolia. Some may have even relocated in and around Greece. Maybe some tribes originated from Italy and the Italian islands, while others were more local to Greece. Either way, the fact that all these people coming to seek Penelope's hand in marriage may preserve activities by the same sea peoples. We do know that Greece was also troubled by these invaders. In the research and discoveries of archaeologist Christoph Nowicki, 
he has found evidence of how local inhabitants of the island of Crete relocated from the coastal settlements to the highlands up in the mountains to escape these pirates during this chaotic period of late Bronze Age history. Switching back to the Trojan cycle, in the fragmented story, the Telegony, Telegonus learns from his mother, the witch Circe, that he is the son of Odysseus. Upon learning this, he sets sail towards Ithaca. Shipwrecked by a storm, he lands on the island, but believes he is on Kirkara, which is modern-day Corfu. Uh, driven by hunger, uh, Telegonus begins to plunder the island. Odysseus and Telemachus defend their home and fight back, which results in Telegonus accidentally killing his father with a spear containing the poisonous barb of a stingray. The story ends with Telemachus marrying Circe and Telegonus marrying Penelope. After their union, Penelope gives birth to Italus, which later tradition claims that he gave his name to Italy. In turn, from Telemachus and Circe was born Latinus. Again, later tradition states that he gave his name to the Latin language. This tradition was likely influenced by Hesiod, a contemporary of Homer's. So, what do all these references and actions of piracy in these ancient stories tell us? In the Homeric universe, piracy was closely associated with warfare. It seems to be almost indistinguishable. The suggestion is that these ancient pirates lean more on the glamorous side since they risk so much in their pursuit of gain. But take notice that none of our Achaean heroes who seem to take the same actions as any other pirate are called as such. There seems to be a distinct separation between the classification of pirates in the poet's mind, despite the lack of differences. The only real difference between those who are heroes and those who are pirates seems to be their fate as it is ordained by the gods. We have a historical example of such piratic actions conducted by the Mycenaean Greeks from within the Hittite cuneiform texts. In the indictment of Matuvata, or CTH-147, we read, But Matuvata said thus, When Atariisa and ruler of Pigaya were raiding the land of Alasia, I often raided it too. Such raids would be entirely consistent with the image presented in the Homeric epics of Mycenaean plundering enterprises conducted through the Aegean and Eastern Mediterranean regions, and may well account for much of the wealth that was accumulated in the Mycenaean palace centers. On this occasion, a Mycenaean warlord called Ataraisa, a ruler of Achaea, extended his military operations in western Anatolia to piratical raids off the southern Anatolian coast. Note that Atareisa is the name Atreus. Yes, we have textual evidence for an Atreus, who in the Homeric epic is the father of both Agamemnon and Menelaus. I am also reminded of an excerpt from Thucydides the 5th century BCE Athenian historian and general. And while it does not directly relate to the sea peoples, it does emphasize how piracy by both land and sea was considered the norm and without stigma or shame. He writes in his first book in his Peloponnesian War. Minos is the earliest of those known to tradition who established a navy. He took control of most of what is now called the Hellenic Sea and ruled over the Cyclades Islands, in most of which he found the first colonies. Driving out the Carians and installing his own sons as governors, 
And naturally, he set about clearing the sea of piracy as far as he could to protect his own increasing revenues. As soon as traffic in ships developed between them, piracy was the recourse of the ancient Greeks and of the barbarians occupying coastal regions of the mainlands and the islands. The leaders were powerful men motivated both by personal gain and by provision of food for the weak. They fell for their plunder on unwalled communities with populations scattered in villages. They robbed each other on land also. Another example, the harbors of both Sardinia and Corsica made for superb bases for pirates. In his Greek questions, question 21, Plutarch spoke of raids by Sardinians led by Polis and Delphis against the island of Crete. These raids were said to have occurred sometime during the 11th or 10th centuries BCE, during the reign of Agus I, king of Sparta, placing it closer to the time of the Sea Peoples. So what does this all mean? Does it mean that we have evidence of the activities of the Sea Peoples preserved in the Homeric myths? Maybe. It is difficult to say for certain, but the evidence is difficult to ignore. And... We have come to an end with another great episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroskatupis.com. Who knows? It may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis signing off. Mm-hmm.